Today's reading comes from Matthew 5, 1, 2, and 8. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You may be seated. And as you're being seated, let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you this morning uh, that you, by your Spirit, have drawn near to us. And we ask now that as your Spirit uh, lives inside of us, lives inside of us and, and moves and transforms us, Lord, that we would draw near to you now. Father, we ask for eyes to see uh, the things that you want to show us, uh, for ears to hear uh, the words you want us to hear and need uh, to hear. We are completely dependent upon you uh, moving in and through us by your Spirit. And so we are so thankful uh, that your word speaks to us today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, in our efforts uh, to unpack uh, the sixth beatitude uh, today, if you're, if you're new with us this morning, we've been going through the past five weeks, actually six weeks, uh, through the Sermon on the Mount, exploring what that means for us, what that looks like, uh, who is Jesus, this preacher who preaches uh, on the Mount. And today we've come uh, to verse 8 of, of chapter 5, and we're going to go all the way to the end of chapter 7. And so we're kind of moving slowly, but that's okay. Uh, these Beatitudes, as we'll see, set the, the pace and the tempo and, and the framework for us uh, to go forward uh, in the sermon. This morning, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I, I want us to, before we dive into that Beatitude, uh, consider three news articles. Three news articles I came across this past week, and at the end, I'll explain to you how they're connected. It might seem quite random at first, but, but bear with me. Uh, the first was this. The New York Times uh, had an article, and the headline read, uh, Taking Ayahuasca When You're a Senior Citizen. Now, if you don't know, and maybe you're like, what's going on right now? Ayahuasca is a powerful psychedelic. It has the active ingredient of DMT, and apparently there's been this, this uptick uh, in people, uh, mostly white, uh, mostly young, mostly North American, traveling to South America and Central America to go to these retreat centers uh, to take uh, ayahuasca, to take the psychedelic with the hope, so the article tells us, uh, of, of seeing God, of encountering some sort of profound vision. Uh, in the article itself, there are examples of like the person lying on the mat next to the, 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 the journalist is like vomiting snakes and it's like these crazy visions. Uh, other people talk about you know, having you know, long hurts resolved, like seeing uh, insane things, really. That's the first article. Again, I promise I'll tie this all up at the end. You're like, what is he talking about right now? Second article I read uh, was entitled this. It came from the Washington Post. It was called, In Space, John Glenn Saw the Face of God. In Space, John Glenn Saw the Face of God. Some of you are old enough to remember that John Glenn, uh, fifth person ever in space, first person to ever orbit the planet, a famous American astronaut who was also a, a Christian. And on his journeys into space, I thought he could see God and his creation uh, and the beauty of it as he went uh, into the stars. And so it was an obituary piece for John Glenn. John Glenn, who saw the face of God in his creation in space. The, the third headline read like this. AI versus God. Who stays and who leaves? AI versus God. Who stays and who leaves? I'll be honest, this article was not very good. Like, it was, it was a poorly written article. 
but basically the gist of it was uh, that AI is the new self-respecting religion. Uh, this is a religion of thinking people, artificial intelligence. And really, in a few years, uh, Silicon Valley will do the unthinkable. They will produce their first soul, putting forever to bed uh, the debate, does God exist or not? It doesn't matter, according to AI people. Uh, we can create God uh, in our own uh, image. Now, at first glance, these articles seem unrelated, like completely unrelated. But I want to suggest this morning uh, that the link that ties all these three articles together is exactly what Jesus wants to teach us about in this sixth beatitude. Each of these articles, in one way or another, one shape, one form or another, is concerned with our knowledge and experience of the transcendent. Our knowledge and experience of of the divine. Our knowledge and experience of someday maybe seeing God. See, whether that's seeing God uh, in the middle of a psychedelic uh, drug experience or seeing God uh, as we push the boundaries of space exploration, or seeing God in the face of our own AI creation, all of these articles at foundation are about seeing God, encountering the divine, reaching for something uh, beyond ourselves. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, uh, this thread, uh, this desire to see God, uh, should not surprise us. It it, it shouldn't surprise us. It should not catch us uh, off guard. The goal, the the purpose, the highest good for the people of God has always been to see God. That's always been the highest good for the people of God, to see and experience and know uh, the divine. But for those of you uh, this morning uh, who would not identify as a Christian, who would say, yeah, I'm not quite sure about that, I want to show you What's underneath our desire? Because we all have this desire uh, for the transcendent, for for the divine. Uh, English preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones, writing about this verse, said this, and I think it's true. To see God is the whole purpose of all religion. To see God is the whole purpose of all religion. But more than that, though, I think seeing God is the underlying purpose behind drug culture behind space exploration, behind all technological advancement. I think all endeavors are touched by this desire to see if we can answer the question, is there any spark of the divine out there? Is there perfection to be arrived at? Is there more than what we know? Can we see God? This morning, I want to walk us through this sixth beatitude aided by this outline. It's really simple. The problem of purity, the problem of purity the person of Jesus, and the promise of seeing God. So the problem, the person, and the promise. The problem of purity. Look at Matthew 5, 8 again, and read this with me. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. For they shall see God. Flourishing deeply happy, in right relationship with God and with others, are the pure in heart. And we should ask, it's a good question to ask, what does it mean to be pure in heart? What does that mean? Uh, One way I think we can answer this question is by separating this word pure from this word heart, and at the end, kind of fusing them back together, and we can go forward that way. So first, purity or, or, or pure. 
As churchy as that word sounds, right? It sounds very churchy, the word pure, doesn't it? Pure, right? It sounds like a, like a precious moments figurine. I don't know if you grew up with those, but it's like this like angel figure that would sit on like a, a shelf. I, no one knows what this is. Yes, thank you. <laughs> uh, purity, pure, sounds very churchy, but it's a word actually that's very much in vogue right now uh, in Vancouver. Like when we buy our orange juice right now, we want the container that says orange juice to contain only orange juice, right? And if it has anything else in it, uh, surely you will get cancer and die in the next year, maybe the next day. Like we don't really know anymore, right? That Netflix documentary we watched, like it causes us to be anxious all the time. Like what am I eating? What am I not eating? I'm getting cancer from all these things. Uh, we love purity in our food. We also like purity like in our, in our jewelry, don't we? Like, if you buy a ring, and some of you are buying rings uh, right now, you know, just for example. Uh, if you buy a ring for your, your fiancé, like, you want that to be a pure metal. And, and the purer the metal, the more expensive that ring is. But, but further, we want the process of obtaining that metal to be pure, right? If there's, like, some sort of conflict, you know, thing going on, or it comes from, like, some, you know, disreputable source, we don't want that. We want purity even in our sourcing. Uh, we even see the language of purity... And show up in the sports we play. Right? In the sports we play. When sports are stripped of their financial incentive, like corporate sponsorships, uh, crazed fans, we remark that an athlete, he plays or she plays for a pure love of the game. So the language of purity, as churchy and as Bible-y as that sounds this morning, isn't altogether unfamiliar uh, to us. We, We know that language. And as we come to the Bible, we find that Scripture's understanding of purity actually has some points of overlap uh, with the biblical understanding of, of purity. See, for Israel, God's people, purity was everything. Everything. Like the way you think about your phone and how obsessed you are with your phone, uh, Israel was obsessed with purity. Like whether or not you went out that day was, was based on the question, like, am I pure? Like whether or not you went to temple to worship the living God was based on the question, are you pure? Whatever you were doing, all of those things fell under the question, am I pure or impure right now? And do I need to purify myself? Israel was obsessed uh, with this question. And this might sound quite strange to our, our prudish modern sensibilities. See, we like like pure OJ and, and pure jewelry and, and, and pure athleticism. Uh, but, but purity of persons, of people, like that sounds quite outdated, doesn't it? Sounds archaic, uh, even offensive, right? Like, eh, like, like we've, we've moved uh, beyond that. But I want to suggest this morning that Israel's pursuit of purity was actually grounded in something much more substantial, something much more meaningful than our pursuit for non-GMO foods. Their pursuit for purity, and we'll see this in just a bit, was grounded in the nature and character of a God who is entirely pure in all he does. Entirely pure. I look at this. Psalm 12, verse 6 says this. The words of the Lord are pure words. Pure words. Like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. The words of God are not hesitant. They're not hesitant, misleading, uh, containing a little truth and and a little error. They they are totally and completely and entirely pure. Totally and completely beneficial. Why? 
because they proceed from a God whose character and nature is pure. Now look at Psalm 18, 26. With the purified, we read, of God, you show yourself pure. The actions of God are not mixed actions. He always does what is right and good and true to the faithful, the blameless, and the pure. Why? Because he himself is faithful, blameless, and and, and pure. See, if we keep on reading in the Bible, what we find is this obsession with purity. Even the tools in the temple, you'll notice this. When they came to worship the living God, these were pure metal, these tools. Pure gold or, or pure silver, right? There was purity in here. That wasn't because, you know, God like, is this like picky interior designer. That's not what's going on with that. It's because God himself is pure and the very temple itself reflects the character and nature of God. See, we think of purity and what do we think of? Like washing, right? Cleansing. Um, purging, Right? But purity, biblically speaking, is much more than just like the absence of something. Purity, biblically speaking, speaks to the fullness of God's character and nature, his, his goodness, his perfection. He, he is not mixed. He is not wavering. He is totally and completely, he's good. This leads us to the second word we need to rightly understand. Jesus says, blessed are the pure. And then he says, in heart, in heart. Now, we see the word heart, and I see the word heart, and automatically I think of what? Like emotions, right? Emotions. Like that guy's got a lot of heart, right? Or that girl's got a lot of heart. And we've talked about this a bit already, but that's not how Jesus, that's not how Jesus' world understood the word heart. Now, for Jesus, the heart is a control center of every person. It's the control center of every person. All of our thinking and our speaking and our doing all proceeds, Jesus believes, uh, from uh, the heart. And this is all over the Bible. Uh, Just after the sermon in Matthew 15, uh, Jesus will say this. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. Notice that Jesus is speaking to the totality of human experience. All of our thinking, right? Evil thoughts, our actions, murder, adultery, uh, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander, our speaking, slander. The totality of human experience, Jesus says, not just part of it, not just some of it, all that comes from our heart. The control center of each person. Jesus is saying, if everything we thought, everything we did, everything we said had a string attached to it, we could pull on that string and it would lead us all the way back to the heart. Deep down behind all of this is the heart. It's this foundational question of what do you and I love? What do you and I desire? If we do bring a purity and heart together, here's how we'd end up. If biblical purity refers to something untainted, unmixed, singular, but there's a positive connotation with it, and heart has to do with our will, what we love, what we desire, here's how I'm suggesting we can read this, this sixth beatitude. Look on the screen behind me. Blessed are those who singularly desire God and his kingdom, for they shall see God. 
Blessed are those who singularly desire. It's not mixed. It's not wavering. God in his kingdom. Because the efforts of our purity, sorry, the aim of our purity is towards God and who he is. Some scholars put it another way. It might be helpful to you. Uh, Dale Allison, uh, W.D. Davies said this. Purity of heart is to will one thing, God's will, with all of one's being. Do you see the problem now? Is it immediately obvious to you? As I was studying this week, the problem became immediately obvious to me. Purity of heart is to will one thing, God's will with all of one's being. Who among us this morning is brave enough to stand up and be like, that's me. I'm here with you this morning. All of my thinking, all my doing, all my speaking, none of it's mixed. It's all towards God. It's all towards his kingdom. Like, that's me. That's me. I, I, I do that. None of us. None of us. The problem of purity since man's rebellion in Eden has been that no one has lived a life pure in heart. Pure at moments? Sure. Pure in actions? Sometimes. But pure in heart? It's impossible. And if you don't believe me, consider the Old Testament character Job. I don't want to offend you. But Job was more spiritual than you. Job loved God more than you love God. Job was more righteous than you. Job was a better philanthropist than you. Job was altogether a better person than you. I'm just saying that's true. He's better than me, better than you, better than all of us here. Job was a pretty stinking good guy. That's my point. And yet Job says in Job 4.17, Can mortal man be in the right before God? This is Job saying this. Can a man, listen to what he says, be pure before his maker? Job does not seem hopeful on this point. How about King David? Like, I know King David had some pretty terrible moments, but on the whole, King David also better than you, better than me, better than us. King David asks in Psalm 24, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? How does David finish that line? He says this, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. The problem of purity is that we can't get it. We can't get it. That's a big problem. Well, the good news this morning, and here's the turn for us this morning, is that David spoke better than he knew. He spoke better than he knew. There is one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Not only that, one who has clean hands and a pure heart, who would purify the hearts, clean the hands of you and I. We come now to point two. Point two, the person of, of Jesus. It might be discouraging as we keep on going in the sermon, just just sort of to warn you. Uh, Jesus does not lessen the demand for purity of heart. In fact, it seems that he's ramping it up. It gets more and more and and more. Jesus will say, someone who is pure in heart not only does not commit adultery, that's good, don't do that, but also doesn't lust in their heart. 
And Jesus will say, someone uh, who is pure in heart, not only is outwardly generous with their money, not only is outwardly generous, but is not driven by money or, or anxiously consumed uh, by money, uh, by the thought of making, keeping, saving money. Jesus says, someone pure in heart actually doesn't anxiously fret over anything. Now, who amongst us this morning in an age of anxiety can say, yeah, I was good with everything this week. I wasn't anxious even once. Not even a little bit. Not food, not drink, not clothing. The, the pure in heart seek first, desire first the kingdom of God. But like all sermons, and this might be good news to you, uh, the Sermon on the Mount eventually comes to an end. And to show us how the person of Jesus solves the problem of, of purity, I want to take us to a story we find uh, immediately after the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. If you have your Bible, go to Matthew chapter 8, verse 1. If you don't have your Bible, you can look on the screen behind me. But we read there of a story where Jesus encounters a leper. This is immediately following the sermon. Matthew records for us. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. If impurity was a disease in the ancient world, it would be leprosy. It would be leprosy. That would be the face of impurity. Uh, This disfiguring skin condition, oftentimes leading to the loss of limbs and extremities, was not only horrific for the person dealing with it, but oftentimes, maybe you know this, uh, forced the person to leave the major urban centers and form these little leprosy colonies on the outskirts of these major sort of urban areas. Uh, They were an outcast both internally, it's terrible, it feels terrible, but but socially they were banished. Socially they they were on the outs, they they were not included. To be a leper was to be impure, period. Leprosy is the picture of impurity. Uh, Some even thought that leprosy was a result of God's disfavor towards you. So here comes Jesus down the mountain. Here comes Jesus down the mountain. And, and who do you think? He's just preached, think about this. He's just preached like the greatest sermon ever. And people are like, wow, that's amazing, right? And, and who is he greeted by? Like a king? Like come with me? Like you're now a king as well? I don't know how that works in terms of passing on kingship. Uh, or, or literary agent? Oh, this was good, we should put this in a book, right? It's a joke. Now who is Jesus greeted by? He's greeted by a leper. The face of impurity, a horrific, impure, outsider leper. And before we get to Jesus' response to the leper and leper's request, I want us to notice something very simple. The leper shouldn't be anywhere near Jesus. He should not be anywhere near Jesus. And in fact, if we keep on reading in Matthew, there are a lot of people, impure people, who shouldn't be anywhere near Jesus. A soldier fighting for the other team. A bunch of of demon-possessed people. An oppressive and cheating bureaucrat. 
historical ethnic enemies of Jesus' people. All these people, these impure people, enemies of God, are flocking to Jesus like a moth to a flame. And that's not how it works. On the other hand, I can't help but be encouraged by this. Maybe this morning you have a growing sense of your own impurity. Your inability to singularly desire anything, let alone God's kingdom. Let alone Jesus. Do you remember what the first words out of the leper's mouth were? He said, Lord, if you will, if you will, you can make me clean. Purity of heart this morning and every day begins for the leper, uh, for the demon-possessed, for all of us with mixed and competing desires, with a recognition that Jesus alone can purify us. More than that, what does the leper say? Lord, if you will, that Jesus wills, desires to purify us. To those who recognize their impurity, Jesus does two things. And the first thing he does is he, by his Holy Spirit, he touches us. He touches us. Matthew 8, 3 uh, reads simply and beautifully. Did you catch that? And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Like Matthew could have just said, and Jesus touched him. Gave him a pat on the back, right? A little, you know, a little, little anointing on the head. I don't know what Jesus' moves were at the time. But he could have just said that, right? And yet Matthew sees uh, it fit, sees it necessary that he emphasize that Jesus is stretching out. Jesus is reaching out from complete and total purity, from complete and total otherness. And he is stretching out and he is touching the leper who couldn't be further away. Spiritually speaking, was on a different planet. And Jesus stretches out and he touches him. Jesus is reaching from a place of complete and total singular devotion to God. He touches the leper, and what I want to say this morning is that he touches us. Or how is that? That sounds very nice in a sermon, but but what does that even mean? The Apostle Paul says that while we were still in our sin, still impure, mixed, Jesus dies on the cross for our sins. Jesus reaches across the ages and he touches the broken hearts of all of his children, all his followers, as he carries with him to the cross all of our uh, mixedness, all of our competing desires, all of our desires that run in the opposite direction of God and his kingdom. Jesus takes them with him to the cross. That the deep impurity of my heart, of your heart, Jesus pays for as he Purely and singularly devoted to do the will of the Father dies on that tree. Here's the encouraging bit. Friends, Jesus is not afraid of your impurity. He's not afraid of it. This is not a happy, clappy club where we can leave things at home, put on our spiritual religious face and come and just be here and, and, and you know, do nice things and, and give and, and shake hands and we're respectable people. Jesus is not afraid of your impurity. Jesus is not afraid of the impurity of hasting sunrise. 
He's not afraid of the impurity of East Vancouver, of Vancouver, of British Columbia, of Canada. Jesus is not afraid of our impurity. In fact, he has reached out. And once and for all, he has dealt with it. The author of Hebrews puts it like this. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The second thing Jesus does, and the author of Hebrews hints at this, it's forever connected to the first thing Jesus does, is that in purifying us, he transforms us and is transforming us. Look back at the story in Matthew 8. Jesus miraculously heals the leper, right? He's healed. It happened. Eyewitness accounts. He does it. But then he says to the leper what? What does he say to the leper? And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go. Show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a, a, a proof to them. Jesus is asking the leper as he goes to the temple, receives a thumbs up from the priest. He'd be welcomed back into society. Jesus is asking the leper and he's asking you and I to walk in the purity he has given us. He's transforming it all. He's changing it all. See, for the disciple of Jesus, every thought, word, and deed is to be unmixed with ulterior motive, unmixed with the competing desire of of equal or greater pull. The Sermon on the Mount, like we saw a few weeks ago, is is really an exposition of righteousness, which has with its relatedness, uh, relatedness, which is related to a purity. Jesus is going to be expositing different situations of purity throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. He's going to be giving us case studies of this. But one of the best case studies of purity, we'll see, will be in Matthew 6, 1 to 18. Jesus will talk about doing spiritual things. And we like to do spiritual things in Vancouver. We are a quote-unquote spiritual people. And Jesus asks us to take a hard look at the spiritual things that we're doing He's going to contrast there. The person who who does spiritual things for the purpose of being seen by others and the person who does spiritual things like like pray and give and and, and fast because they genuinely have a singular desire for God and his kingdom. Let me ask you, Christ City, this is a great point of application if you want to narrow it down here. Why do you do the spiritual things you do? Why do you do the spiritual things you do? Let me elaborate. Do you read your Bible in the morning, in the morning or at night or whenever you read it, uh, so that you can tell other people you've done it? I did it. I'm spiritual. Do you do it to gain knowledge for yourself, to use as a weapon against other people so they'll know, oh, Jake knows his Bible, or so-and-so knows their Bible. Like, they're spiritual, they're, they're mature, they're, they're godly. And we read our Bibles to gain an advantage over other people, to, to beat people with like a club. And do you give, do you give so that other people will know how generous you are? Like Heath said last week with mercy, do you give with an eye towards the statue they might build of you someday? 
I'm going to give now, but I'll, I'll let it slip a few times to a few key people, and it will get out. I'll get that wing in the hospital. Do you fast? I don't know if you do fast. Because there is nothing sexier and more in vogue in Vancouver right now than someone who is like so spiritual that they fast. Whoa, dude. That's spiritual, right? You hear all about it. Why do you fast? Why do you give? Why do you pray? Jesus says, if you do these things with an eye towards other people, with an eye towards your own glory, he says, you're a hypocrite. That's the language Jesus uses. The opposite of somebody pure in heart is a hypocrite. That's the dichotomy Jesus sets up in the Sermon on the Mount. Outwardly you profess one thing, yet Jesus and his kingdom, but inwardly you desire something else. Let me add this, because I don't want to be unclear about this. The answer this morning is not to not do anything until you have a completely pure heart. Some of you will even be like, well, how do I do anything then? I don't have a pure heart. But the answer, if you're in Jesus, is to ask the Lord uh, in the midst of your imperfect following to purify your heart. Jesus transforms us once and transforms us again over time. It purifies our heart over time. The answer is not apathy or even despair, but, but a constant examining of our interior lives to expose what is mixed in us, what is impure in us. What isn't directed towards Jesus and Jesus' kingdom? The good news this morning is that Jesus has dealt with our impurity. And he is able, by his Holy Spirit, this is the good news, Christ City, to transform us more and more into those who are pure in heart. We come full circle now to the payoff or or the promise. Point three, uh, the promise of seeing God. Jesus says, Blessed are the pure in heart. Why are they blessed? Why are they flourishing? Why is this true? For they shall see God. They shall see God. What will it mean to see God? The first sort of asterisk warning I want to begin with is, if anyone ever tells you, hey, hey friend, here's what it means exactly to see God. Here are some details about it. I actually saw God. I can show you a diagram of the room I was in and and, and the choir that was singing uh, and the sort of, you know, processional that was happening. You should run from that person and and burn that book. And I'm not being facetious or, or, or exaggerating here. In the Old Testament, Moses, who again was better than you, better than me, Moses saw the back of God. Couldn't behold God, would surely die if he saw God. The, the, the unwavering witness of the scriptures is that if you see God, you die. You die. So if someone tells you, here are the details, friend, you should say, God bless you, let's not talk anymore. Or here's the gospel, here's what it means. That's the first little caveat I want to begin with. Uh, we, we can't know in exacting detail what it means to see God, but I think there are a, a few things scripture uh, lets us in on. The first is this. Seeing God will mean that the growth uh, in purity and holiness that began on this earth, that for some of you might begin today, uh, will have been perfected. We will be changed. There is coming a day where we will be of, of singular devotion. We will have one undivided will, just like him. And the Apostle John, he writes this. Beloved, we are God's children now. 
And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because, listen to what John says. It's almost too amazing to believe. We shall see him as he is. Seeing God means that we will be changed. We will be changed. And as our beatitude reminds us, not just by way of a new imperishable body, but deeper still with with a new heart filled to the brim with one affection and one love. We will be changed. Now, if that's too out there for you to even imagine, I, I think one way in which we can anticipate this day now, today, is to think about a time in our lives when someone has put in the effort to truly know us, to truly listen to us, to truly hear us. They don't immediately judge us or categorize us, but worked hard to truly get to know us. Can you think of that time? What did that feel like? When we see God, we will be seeing the one who knows us. There's no wondering, like, do I belong? Because God sees all your stuff and says, yeah, you're mine. He knows all of us. All of that long-held hope that our suffering was being seen, our prayers were being heard, our tears being collected will be confirmed. And Paul writes this, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then, again, what does he say? Face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. I think one of the reasons that Lloyd-Jones is right, that all of religion, all life is centered on the purpose of seeing God, is that all of us, I don't care how you come here this morning, all of us are holding out hope that there is one, one who truly knows us, who truly sees us, all of us, all of our unmixedness, and in Christ accepts us. The second thing we can say about seeing God is that it means not only will we be transformed, but all of creation will be made new. The Apostle John, in a vision of the new heavens and the new earth, said this, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were were for the healing of the nations. Verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. To see God is not only to know personal, total renewal, but to stand in a world where all things have been made new, where the creation no longer groans under the curse, but but flourishes. Thirdly, and this is perhaps most importantly, seeing God means we will see God. Ultimately, it is God who is the object of our seeing. It is God in all his glory and his goodness that you and I, veil removed, will see, will enjoy, will will, will know. I think the longing we have to see God, I don't think that's a, a silly longing. 
I, I truly get, and this might scare some of you, I truly get and understand why people would pay money to fly to Peru, take a drink with a psychedelic in it, with the hope of maybe seeing God. I, I, I really understand that. I, I get the urge to search space for answers to the big questions. And maybe you're a hardcore AI person. I, I, I get those of you who've given up on the idea of God out there and are now looking to build God right here. Like, I really get that desire. But what if God, this is a thought, what if God couldn't be seen in any of those things? What if thousands, thousands of years ago, God sent his son, a son who said, whoever has seen me has seen the father, to make a way for you and I, purified by his touch, to one day see God. And Jesus promises his followers today, those who have been gripped by his kingdom, he says this, blessed are the pure in heart. He promises them, for they shall see God. Would you stand with me now as we respond this morning? Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.